Welcome to the first issue of the Phonetic Renaissance. The medium is the message. The chances of your understanding anything going on in your own time are very small, except through the means or media provided by artists. This issue contains a crowdsourced podcast with Andrew McLuhan. The medium is the message. The user is content. A curation of iconic McLuhan clips. When you live in an information age, culture becomes big business. In a long-form interview with Marshall McLuhan. No one is quoted more by Marshall McLuhan, I don't think, than James Joyce. Talking itself is very much rooted in the idea that the medium is the message. We will open with a short intro to the magazine. In the electric age, you don't have a continuity in the old sense. And the basics of digital communication and cybernetics the shaping effects of the technology itself. Talking about the medium as the message or the massage. I hope you enjoy. Welcome to the first issue of the Phonetic Renaissance, a brand new audio magazine. And you know, when you hear that, you might wonder like, what the hell is an audio magazine? Well, it's pretty simple. I don't know either. So let's find out. Audio is definitely a new frontier. It's simultaneously the oldest medium we have with the spoken word. And it's at the cutting edge of expression and articulation and spread of ideas online. There's the world of podcasting, which is huge and just growing explosively. There's all the new audio apps that are all attempting to make sense of this space. It's a whole new tool for getting a large group of people around a much more complicated consensus. It's a tool for thought. It's a tool for people to communicate with voice messages. And just generally, there's this very strong emerging frontier of trying to bring the power of this medium to broader online communication. And if you just look at what the mobile internet did with writing and typing, and what it did with the camera and video and photos, you definitely get the sense that there is the space to figure out how do you do this? How do you enable the medium of audio at this kind of scale? So this magazine is an exploration of what's possible within this medium, some of the new tools available like Talkit. So I want to see, does the framework of magazine translate over to audio? I think there's a really good chance that it could become very cool. Magazines like focus the conversation around some topic and then have like a bunch of initiatives within them. I think that could work really well in audio form. So let's find out. And without further ado, I want to introduce the first edition of the phonetic renaissance titled the medium is the message this magazine is all about exploring the medium so what better discourse to approach in that exploration than media studies and the work of marshall McLuhan? so after this intro this edition of the magazine will have three parts the first is an audio ama with andrew McLuhan. the second is a selection of clips um, by Marshall, Eric, and Andrew McLuhan that explore like McLuhan thought. And the third and final piece will be just a long form piece of content that you can listen to, like a lecture or a podcast that is pretty long, not interrupted, not broken up, and you can just keep listening to it that explores these ideas as well. 
I introduced each initiative in its part, so I'm not going to talk too much about them, but I'm super excited for this, especially the AMA with Andrew McLuhan. It turned out amazing, and it's pretty incredible Like what kind of knowledge and conversation and dialogue was unlocked with pretty simple tools that TalkIt provides. It really enabled like a conversation at a level that I don't think you could get anywhere else online. Like people submitted their questions in audio form or on text on Twitter, and it just created this really new style of conversation. So yeah, I'm super excited. There's really no better topic and no better people to start an initiative like this with than a McLuhan himself and exploring these really cool and undervalued ideas. So enjoy the first edition of the Phonetic Renaissance. The medium is the message. Hi, this is Andrew McLuhan. Uh, pleased to join you as the guest slash host uh, of the first Ask Me Anything on Talk It, uh, the first crowdsourced podcast as it's being built. Um, I'm director of the McLuhan Institute, which is devoted to conserving, perverse, uh, not perverting, preserving and caring for the work of Marshall and Eric McLuhan in media studies. And it is my pleasure to be here today and uh, ask or avoid your questions. Thanks for joining me. How would I describe the process of my own education and my dive into McLuhan work? Well, um, I wasn't a particularly great student for most of my uh, education career. I kind of fell out of interest with studies around grade three or so, much to my parents' dismay, um, and eventually uh, did pull it together in order to graduate high school, which I figured was probably a good thing to do. But... Um, I wasn't really uh, ready or interested in going into post-secondary studies when I did finally finish high school, uh, and I never did actually get around to doing that. Um, so at this point, I'm jokingly, not jokingly, holding out for maybe an honorary degree, which maybe some university will eventually give to me. That would be fun. Uh, how I got into McLuhan work was really not um, by choice. I guess it was by choice, but I didn't set out to do it. Um, what happened was my dad, Eric McLuhan, who was Marsha McLuhan's oldest son and his uh, closest collaborator, uh, who continued Marshall's work after Marshall died in 1980, up until Eric died in 2018. Um, my dad needed somebody um, to travel with him, basically, when he gave talks. Uh, and my mom wasn't available the one time, so I went. Um, and, you know, later in my life, in my early 30s, it was, the McLuhan work kind of appealed to me and made sense to me, more important, uh, in a way it hadn't when I was younger. Um, and I just kind of got into it uh, on that basis. I started working more with my dad 
Um, I was given some things to do and I did them and then I wanted to do more uh, to the point where now um, it's pretty much my full-time thing, which is great. I couldn't, I couldn't be happier. Um, it's a bit of a surprise. Uh, <laughs> I wasn't sure I would be able to make a go of it, but um, I felt that the world needed access to McLuhan work. Uh, somebody needed to, to uh, continue the tradition that Marshall started and my dad kept going. And uh, it seemed that if nobody else, if I didn't do it, nobody else would. So um, I accepted. And, uh, and here we are today. Hal on Twitter asks, you famously criticized the 1976 presidential debates as bad television by people that did not understand the medium. What would you say of the Trump-Hillary debates? Thanks for your question, Hal. Um, well, I did not criticize those televised debates. I think you're uh, <laughs> asking the wrong person that question. But I can talk about the, the Trump and Hillary debates, um, which... I didn't really pay very much attention to, but I didn't need to. Um, Trump came out ahead because he realized that, um, well, I guess throwing back to Marshall's comment, it's not uh, it's not a debating medium. Uh, and in fact, debate um, is obsolete. Uh, you don't win people over by persuasion. Uh, and likability has, you know, very little to do with anything, uh, much to people's chagrin. Um, you know, neither Trump nor Hillary won or lost because of their relative likability, uh, and, you know, ration, uh, rationality or reason had nothing to do with it either. It had everything to do with attention, uh, and perception. And uh, I suppose popularity, but not in in the sense of relative likability. Uh, you know, one thing Trump is very, very was anyway very good at is getting attention, and uh, appealing to uh, you know a lot of people's I think baser instincts. Um, I'll say, unfortunately. Uh, and the, the funny thing was, you know, something that had people very, very upset is that um, the polls, uh, you can't rely on polls anymore because, um, you know, people might say one thing and then vote another thing. Polls are, are absolutely unreliable. Uh, I think a better a better metric is simple user engagement, uh, and I think you'll find that Trump won on that, uh, which translated to a victory in the White House. Aviv on Twitter says, "What's your reaction to what we see with cinematic universes today? For example, with the Marvel Cinematic Universe." Marshall was one of the first thinkers to give pop culture its due. How do you interpret this shift in the structure of film production? Uh, the question concerning cinematic universes. Um, right, so Marshall McLuhan uh, was 
one of the first to treat pop culture seriously, um, particularly comics, uh, advertising, things of that nature. Back in his day, um, that wasn't proper material for a serious academic or critic uh, to address. And so uh, academics didn't take him very seriously, uh, or critics, but um, his students loved it. And it started for him because he wanted to understand his students, and so he wanted to understand uh, them. He looked to their to their culture, to their environment, and that was things like comics and advertising. Um, he was a literary critic. Keep in mind, uh, he was trained as a critic, uh, and he, you know, simply uh, set his critical faculties on things like comics uh, and advertising much to advertisers at the time, chagrin. Um, but your question about uh, the state of film today, uh, well, for one thing, it's not really film anymore. But it makes sense if you put it in place. I would say that what we're seeing is um, a reflexive effect on film the film medium from uh, Netflix and streaming services where um, you don't have a one-off film, but you have a series. Um, it's just, you know, a series that's running now into what, probably hundreds of hours at this point. Um, but yeah, that's, that's where I would say the main effect is, is it's, uh, freeing that form from being, uh, you know, one thing or maybe, you know, a trilogy to being a universe. Hi, Andrew. I have two questions, so I'm going to try to be quick about it. Uh, the first is about the medium as the message. I've always felt that McLuhan was really uh, fascinated with electricity and therefore with this uh, zeros and ones and the basics of digital communication and cybernetics. And uh, I think that for him, this was the medium, you know, the very, very ground ontology of the medium, while all the other different technologies were more, you know, forms on the surface. So I know you've written some things about the real meaning of the medium is the message, but I was wondering if there was something about this even deeper meaning that he was always talking about cybernetics and electricity as the very basis of what changes us and not just, you know, this or that technology, the phone or the computer or TV or whatever. So that's one thing. Um, second thing is, uh, is my favorite um, piece of McLuhan's is actually the last book that your father uh, finished for him. Um, and the laws of media. And uh, this book was discovered by philosophers of technology in the last decade. And uh, people said that McLuhan actually contributed more than Heidegger to philosophy of technology because everything could be thought of as media and behaves according to the laws of media. And this becomes this kind of ontology that a lot of philosophers are now fascinated with. And um, I was wondering, uh, what is your take 
on that, on the laws of media and their uh, relevance and applications today. Thank you. Hey, Carmel. Uh, thank you for those questions. Quite a bit there. <laughs> um, so yeah, that's that's really interesting. Marshall always uh, took it back beyond, well beyond the surface and beyond the content and the use and toward the essence of a thing. And so he went back to electricity and, you know, all the the new media that we were seeing after electricity being different manifestations of electricity, just as, uh, you know, the things we're seeing today could be argued as manifestations of electricity uh, with um, digital structures as well, binary ones and zeros, whatnot. Um, I think it's also useful to think about electricity um, in terms of protons and electrons and uh, the alphabet as a shaping force being made up of phonemes, right? Uh, phonemes being the constituent parts, uh, words, language being the content or result of that, and also other media. Um, so Marshall looked at the message of the phoneme, meaning taking, uh, removing sound from sense and abstraction and uh, deconstruction uh, and the assembly line and one thing at a time and, you know, all these other things as sort of manifestations of uh, the form of the technology uh, of the phonetic alphabet, the phoneme. Uh, electricity, just apply the same principle there and you see uh, how he viewed it as well, I would think. Laws of media. Yeah, it is starting to get more attention now. Um, one of the main contributions of Marshall McLuhan to media studies is simply this definition of what is a medium. And, you know, media studies comes out of communication studies, but goes well beyond it, especially in the McLuhan sense, because McLuhan um, just it goes beyond what can we can consider a medium, and it's well beyond communication, because communication is the content. But um, Marshall broadens this category in 1964 with understanding media, the extensions of man. So not just the extensions of man or human that we use to communicate with, but um, all innovation, all, uh, you know, all things we bring outside ourselves to accomplish an increase in speed or, um, you know, ability or pace or any of these things. Are, are worthy of our attention as shaping forces. Um, and, you know, not just something like the telephone, but uh, something like our clothing, right? The, where we are the content of the clothing as much as we're the content of the telephone or the internet. Um, it is literally us inside the clothes. Uh, but 
look at, at the effect of clothing um, and what it makes possible uh, in extreme situations. It allows us to live in any, you know, other than very warm all the time climates. Uh, it protects us from this and that. It allows us to do things. And it does that, um, you know, by its nature, uh, by its very nature. In Laws of Media, what Marshall and Eric set out to do was to, you know, they're always trying to understand media, understand technology and innovation uh, as being a, a human product um, to understand the effects of things and uh, to you know, do a little bit better. As I said, the previous question, you said we can think things out before we put them out. Um, and it's, it's very easy to see the effect of something looking back, but, you know, it can be very difficult to imagine what the effect is looking forward. So Marshall um, set out to discover um, if there are any laws of media, that is, you know, we have laws or principles of gravity, uh, of thermodynamics, of entropy, etc. Um, what might be the laws governing human innovation, human technology? And, you know, so that would mean, are there, are there any behaviors of human technology that are universal across human technologies? That's kind of the criteria for being a law, is it has to apply across the board. And looking at it, as you know, if you read laws of media, they discovered that all technologies do at least four things. And that's not to say that, all, you know, technologies only do four things. That's crazy. But we know that they all do these four things uh, in particular. And, and that is that they enhance or amplify some function. I mean, that is, that is why we generally innovate is to do something better or differently or more easily. Um, in doing so, they also obsolesce something else. So, um, you know, we, it takes over from the way we used to do it. Um, it tends to bring back a way of doing things from the past. So something that was previously obsolesced. And when it's pushed to an extreme, um, it reverses or finds, uh, you know, or flips its characteristics to do something quite different than we set out to do. Um, and where this is, this is very useful is that um, it's a starting point. You know, it's um, in any creative project whatsoever, the hardest thing is getting going. And so where laws of media, the laws of media are very useful is that if you want to find out what a technology does, um, here you have four really good starting points. Um, and, you know, once you get rolling, it's, it's easier to make headway. Uh, I think academics, had a hard, academics and others had a really hard time with it uh, off the bat in the 70s um, because it requires a different approach. It requires speculation and experimentation and some some measure of playfulness and uh, malleability and willingness to test things. Um, there, 
you know, they're not hard categories. Um, there's not one right answer. Uh, and that's, that's what people wanted back then and still what people want. But I think people are more open now um, to exploration and discovery. And, uh, and I think that accounts for the rising popularity of them. Um, really, at the end of the day, they're either useful to you or they're not. And, um, you know, if it's useful, as Marshall would say, you know, take what's useful and forget about what's not. Let's, there's, there's too much to do than to sit around and argue about it. Take what's useful and forget what's not. And unfortunately, I think there are some people out there who would rather take what's not useful and, and harp on about that and forget about what's actually useful. And uh, that to me is a little bit sad. G on Twitter says, Marshall often talks about the role of the artist as a sort of early alarm system. How did he believe this worked? All right. Um, Marshall and the artist as radar or distant early warning. Um, like many McLuhan things, uh, this originates one place and Marshall kind of drove it somewhere else uh, or further anyway. Um, the artist as radar idea um, comes from Ezra Pound, another of McLuhan's heroes. Uh, Ezra Pound wrote a book, highly recommended, called The ABC of Reading. And uh, in that book, uh, a few dozen pages in, Ezra Pound casually tosses in that, quote, the artist is the antenna of the race. And uh, Marshall certainly agreed. And, and here's why. Um, the artist, an artist, and okay, so Marshall McLuhan kind of privileges uh, the capital A artist. Um, but the artist, he, he believed, was a, a person in society who's always uh, sharpening their perceptive faculties, their senses. They're always trying to, they're always reaching, you know, uh, like a radar. They're always reaching, trying to experience the novel, uh, experience new things in new ways. In this way, they're, they're very much like children um, whose senses are very raw, uh, very sharp. Because uh, as we get older, uh, our senses dull, you know. I'm sitting here wearing reading glasses. Uh, sometimes I have to strain to hear a little bit. Our senses dull. That's a fact. Um, I think oftentimes we, we allow them to dull or atrophy as well. Um, or maybe it's just the natural course of things. I don't know. In any event, there, there are more senses than meet the eye, so to speak. But, um, artists, uh, are always out there sharpening their senses, uh, you know, their nerves tingling. And because of that, they, they notice things we don't. Um, I bring up Banksy and street artists a lot because, uh, street artists like Banksy are always walking around, uh, you know, and certain comedians are like this too, trying to notice things, you know, Jerry Seinfeld, you ever notice how people blah, 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 blah. They're always noticing things. That's an important function, a vital function in our society. 
uh, and Marshall made full use of them. Uh, so, for example, Banksy does this uh, did this piece called "The Girl with the Pearl Earring," which is a take on Vermeer's classic drawing painting. And what Banksy did was he saw, uh, you know, these ubiquitous uh, uh, alarms on buildings in England. Um, this was a round one on the outside of a brick building. And Banksy uh, decided this was the, the pearl in the girl, the girl's ear, and drew it like a pearl and then illustrated uh, the, the girl around it. Um, you know, the artists notice these things in the environment that the rest of us do not. And it is their job, quote unquote, um, their imperative to tell us about it. Um, usually, this is not very welcome. Um, because you see, and apologies for pedantry, but, um, you know, technologies affect our senses deeply uh, and they shape who we are um, according to their natures. Um, and you and I uh, may be of one generation that grew up in a certain technological milieu shaping environment and we're shaped a certain way. And uh, a short time later, there's uh, a new generation and they're shaped a different way. And that accounts, uh, this is the generation gap, you know. So uh, I also talk about Elvis sometimes because today Elvis seems pretty boring, right? And not exactly controversial. But in his time, Elvis was very controversial. And, you know, to the to the establishment, to the older folks, uh, it was very abrasive. Uh, awful music and gosh the shocking way he danced and all the rest of it today that's laughable right it's so harmless um in comparison but this this is toward that point that uh the new is often uh not uh poorly received by the old and that's because we're different people uh simply put we're we're very different um but so Marshall used the arts to as a as a distant early warning, as a sign that change is over the horizon, or actually change is here. Um, but it's it's registered first in the arts because they're more open and attuned to it. Um, you and I, I mean, you and I can see or hear or notice those signals um, and not necessarily know what they mean except great change. Uh, Marshall's genius, and don't ask me because it's not like I have it figured out and can do the same thing, um, but Marshall was able to um, to receive and study those signals and read them in ways that nobody else could, and that's why um, he was able to do what he did. Numi on Twitter asks this, what will social media look like after reversal when it gets pushed to its limits? Uh, what will social media look like after pushed to its limits? Um, I think, I mean, I think you're, you're asking a question about the future that's already happened. <laughs> really uh, look around us and we're, we're looking at what happens when you push social media to an extreme uh, social media peaked, I don't know, arguably uh, quite a long time ago already. Uh, traditional medium monetization where you could say uh, 
mostly source-based. The more uh, charismatic, popular, powerful the source, the more it attracted the advertisers. The social media model was more destination-based, and no matter how small or fringe or unhinged your consumption was, you were consuming a few hours a day, and uh, advertisers uh, monetized that. This rug was pulled uh, by new privacy policies by Apple and such uh, from um, mediums like Facebook, um, making advertising in those platforms 90% less effective just lately. What do you think is the future of medium uh, monetization? Thank you. Thanks for your question, uh, Sharon. What do I think is the future of media monetization? Uh, frankly, I don't think it's going to be very much different um, than the past, <laughs> really. And that's because uh, I don't have a very high opinion of the creativity of these people. Uh, I think they'll probably stick with the tried and true methods and just, you know, find more ways to rig the game in their favor. That's my suspicion. Um, you know, new media offer all kinds of new opportunities. Um, and I'm sure there are, uh, in fact, I know there are other ways to monetize, um, you know, to derive financial benefit income uh, from things. Uh, I think the big shift is going to be um, in the power, or rather who benefits. Uh, and we're starting to develop more and more tools to allow, um, you know, people on our side of the, of the equation to benefit more directly um, from the things that we produce or from our, our labor, um, if you will. It's funny when our labor is, is <laughs> pretty passive, uh, sometimes active now, but mainly passive in consumption. Um, but I think uh, if there's a future in media monetization, it's moving more toward that. However, um, you know, the powers that be do have a lot of the power. Um, and I'm sure they're working very hard to maintain it, that status quo. Um, but I don't think they'll, uh, I think they're increasingly losing their grip, that monopoly in media monetization. Man, that's a mouthful. Um, and so, I, frankly, I see the trend more toward that. And I don't think it's a win-lose proposition I think the savvy person would find a way to uh, cross-monetize, if that makes any sense whatsoever. Uh, I, think, I think there's a way to um, reward users, content creators, one and the same thing, monetarily, while um, also keeping back some pieces of the pie for yourself. And I think that's where the smart money will be. Coach D on Twitter asked the following question. 
Are there any very underrated McLuhan quotes, by Marshall, Eric, or Andrew, that are completely overshadowed by the medium is the message? Are there any McLuhan quotes, uh, Marshall, Eric, or Andrew, that get overshadowed by the medium is the message? Um, sure. No. Yes and no. Uh, I mean, the medium is the message, uh, 1958 and still going strong in 2022. Um, it's iconic for the reason that those five words pack a lot of punch. It's a pretty amazing accomplishment, really. Um, any way you look at it. Um, one, uh, you know, there is a sub, a sub quote. And that is the user is content. The medium is the message. The user is content. Um, that's, uh, you know, the title of Understanding Media, the Extensions of Man. Um, we are the etymology of, of media, of our media, that they all come from us and extend outward from us. And if you walk it backwards, you get into yourself. Um, so the user is content is. A very useful little phrase which don't gloss over it i would I would consider that one because that also has a lot a lot of mileage. Thomas on Twitter asks this: Do you see any connection between tetrads, the human equation, and cybernetics? If so, what are those connections? Hi, Thomas. Uh, do I see a connection between tetrads, the human equation, and cybernetics? Um, certainly a connection between um, tetrads or laws of media and the human equation. I would think that's kind of obvious. Uh, as you may or may not know, uh, the laws of media is an extension uh, a natural progression from uh, understanding media, the extensions of man, as is the human equation. Uh, as my my father, who co-authored the human equation with Wayne Constantino, um, told me the human equation is understanding media as told by the body. But um, the tetrad. Uh, from laws of media and the tetrad from the human equation are different things. Uh, and it's, it's a difference that makes a difference, as they say. Um, and because, how to explain this? So the tetrad tells you about how a technology behaves, uh, what it does, its effect, whereas the human equation tells you uh, how a technology manifests. This is my understanding. So the human equation uh, builds on the body's four primary postures. I'm not an expert on this, but, um, and for example, tells us that uh, humans have developed four ways, uh, four technologies, I guess, main technologies for eating, 
And they are the knife, the fork, the spoon, and the chopstick. Now the tetrad can tell you uh, four things about the knife, four things about the spoon, four things about the fork, and four things about the chopstick. Um, so they're they're different things, and the really cool thing about the human equation, which I don't think anybody knows about, or very few people, um, but it's, wow, is it a powerful tool? Because um, it tells you that all, all human technologies have four possible uh, outcomes or logical manifestations. And what that means is that if you have a new technology and you see what it's being used for, you know that there are three other possible manifestations just waiting in the wing. And if you're into innovation or if you're into, you know, development or even VC financing, whatever, um, that's, that's a pretty big, that's a pretty big deal. Wooly asks this question on Twitter. During the Obama campaign, people said Obama was a Facebook president. Trump was a Twitter president and Andrew Yang is the podcast candidate. What is the McLuhan take on these medium creatures and how they both leverage the medium and are created by them? Uh, that's interesting. I hadn't heard it characterized that way, that um, Trump is a Twitter president, uh, Obama, Facebook, and Yang being a podcast candidate. Um, I think... <laughs> I think the maybe the easiest way to, to cover that in the shortest way is to say that um, Trump is the kind of guy who would never bring a knife to a gunfight and um, the other presidents or candidates aren't necessarily that savvy. Hello. I wanted to ask about mediums that mix with each other and what does it mean? What kinds of messages happen from mediums mixing. For instance, um, lately I've been watching uh, operas from the Metropolitan's streaming service. So what's up with that? Hey, thank you so much for that. Uh, very, very good question. And also well done um, because... Uh, <laughs> You know, an opera, watching an opera on a streaming service is not the same thing at all as watching an opera in person. In fact, they're completely different experiences. That's why you can't actually, uh, you can't watch a film on television because a film on television is television, not a film. And some people might scoff and say, oh, semantics. Um, but actually, semantics are, are very important things. And it's one thing to watch uh, an opera broadcast uh, on TV or, you know, your computer screen or whatever. Or even broadcast in a theater as they, you know, our local theater here does that. Um, and quite another thing to be there in the audience in person. Um, very, very, very different matters. Um, the definitive answer on this, and I would point you to it, is um, which chapter is it? Chapter three of Understanding Media, 1964. Uh, the chapter is called Hybrid Media. 
And it's all about what happens when media get together and act on each other. Um, it's very, 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 very useful to look at, and I highly recommend it. Come to think of it, uh, there is more to say about that. I mean, there's lots more to say. Um, for one thing, as Marshall said, the content of a new medium is generally an old medium. So every time we come up with a new technology, we we generally use it to do the same old thing in a new way. In other words, um, well, he illustrates that by this kind of worn, but I still like it joke where, um, pardon me, there's these two goats and they're out, uh, they're in Hollywood out behind the MGM studios or whatnot and, um, feasting on, a on a pile of, uh, discarded movie reels and, uh, they're munching away happily. And one goat says to the other, Oh, uh, what you got there? Uh, and he says, Oh, it's gone with the wind. The goat says, Oh, uh, is it any good? And the goat munches for a second. He says, well, I preferred the book. Which it gets at another thing uh, about taste um, and, you know, preference and that kind of thing. Uh, in any event, uh, I do point you toward hybrid media um, because, yeah, watching uh you can't you can't watch a film on television it's not the same thing um and uh another way of of coming at it is that uh for example the the film you know adaptation of the book uh it can never be faithful to the book they're completely different media and they're different ways of telling a story. Um, in the same way that, you know, my response here is a very different way from, from my written response. It affords certain things. Uh, maybe I'm rambling a bit more than I would on, on paper or screen or whatnot. Um, but it's kind of funny that, um, a new, a new way, uh, a new technology, a new technique. We always feel we have to translate everything into us, into it, just as we are translated into a new person by it as well. Tons of puns asks uh, Professor McLuhan why he made snarky comments about Marxism and Marx and Marxists, um, and then uh, ask about the Cold War and did that fact have any dampening effect on what he felt he could or couldn't say. Um, well, I'm not Professor McLuhan, so uh, I won't presume to, to answer as Professor McLuhan. However, it's true that uh, Marshall loved uh, throwing out jabs at Marx and Marxists. Um, and they're all over the place. There are several in his 1964 work, Understanding Media, the Extensions of Man. Um, and he um, 
he thought, you know, how to say this? <laughs> he felt that the whole notion of communism was ridiculous because uh, what they were asking for was already there. Um, that Marx was commenting on a situation that was already in the past. You know, by the time Marx came around, um, the world was already in a, a much better place for the average person um, than it had ever been. So, uh, you know, as Marshall was saying back in the 60s, the average person uh, in England was already living the communist dream. They had access to uh, basically all of the services that any more wealthy person did. Um, access to education, access to healthcare, access to, to anything. Um, you know, being rich, uh, the gap between the rich and poor was much, much less than it had ever been. And so he liked to, to make fun of them for that fact. As, uh, as for the Cold War, um, putting, you know, making him unable to address certain topics or something, um, that, that was never, uh, an issue as far as I, you know, could tell, can tell. I'd never thought of it. Um, but thinking about it since you posed the question, I don't think so. I mean, Marshall McLuhan was also a devout Catholic and very, um, not only devout, but, uh, you know, I guess a good Catholic. Um, but that didn't stop him from, you know, pointing out where the church had gone and was going very wrong in his, you know, view. So I don't think uh, the fact of the the Cold War, uh, you know, aggression between U.S. and um, Russia, USSR, um, played a factor. Keep in mind, though, that um, Marshall McLuhan was Canadian, so that's probably a factor as well. Thank you for the question, tons of puns. Uh, what did Marshall McLuhan have to say about James Joyce in Finnegan's Wake? Well, I feel like I'm being trolled here, but I'll answer the question because <laughs> some people might genuinely be curious. Uh, McLuhan, Marshall McLuhan, and my father, Eric McLuhan, had a lot to say about Joyce uh, in Finnegan's Wake in particular. Um... Joyce called himself the greatest engineer of the 20th century, and Marshall agreed. Um, Marshall incidentally studied mechanical engineering before he went into English literature, but um, he definitely held up James Joyce as one of the towering figures, uh, if not the towering figure of 20th century um, letters and and more. Um he had a lot to say about it, way more uh, than really one can reasonably go into any place. But um, the evidence is, is pretty clear. Uh, no one is quoted more by Marshall McLuhan, I don't think, than James Joyce. And no work is more quoted uh, by Marshall McLuhan than Finnegan's Wake. Um, that's just facts right there. <clears throat> 
But if um, if you're interested in more about it, uh, I would recommend uh, an essay Eric McLuhan wrote um, called Joyce and McLuhan, and that's contained in a book put out in 2011 by Peter Lang of New York called Theories of Communication. Um, and it's a very, well, it's an important essay, but it's also a, a very, very important book which uh, unfortunately is kind of expensive because they are trying to market it as a textbook, but it is uh, well worth the price, honestly. Um, Mar Eric has another essay in there called Marshall Clune's Theory of Communication, um, which is very, very useful if you're interested in peeking behind McLuhan's curtain a little bit, as it were. Thank you. Hi, Andrew. Uh, very excited to have you answering questions here and curious to hear your thoughts. Uh, as we often talk about, uh, talk it itself is very much rooted in the idea that the medium is the message, right? We initially looked at podcast space and we saw how the level of content and discussion there is just head and shoulder above anything else out there. Uh, and we attributed this mostly to the medium of long form recorded audio, which has very different both creation and consumption patterns from other mainstream media, mostly text and video. Um, and that's really what we're trying to do. We're trying to bring the spark that everybody sees in podcast space to something like a Twitter scale communication platform. And we're very hopeful about what could happen if we manage to do this successfully. Um, now, at the same time, this is not society's uh, first rodeo when it comes to utopic visions about social media, right? Uh, people nowadays don't really remember this or at least talk about this very much. But back in 2007, everybody knew how Facebook and Twitter were going to bring democracy to the entire world. Because how could a dictatorship continue to stand when the people being oppressed could see how great life was under a democracy? Uh, and they were going to end racism because how could anybody remain racist where they could see their fellow human beings who are just like them uh, on the other side of the world or on the other side of the street? Uh, nowadays, of course, the conversation has completely flipped, right? People talk about how social media is destroying democracy and how it's increasing polarization and extremism uh, and echo chambers, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, so in many ways, it seems like, you know, media literacy is kind of at an all-time high, right? Everybody is aware how the medium that is social media is impacting society in extremely powerful ways that, you know, pieces of content themselves could never do. Uh, but most of this conversation is focused on what you might call the back end of the media landscape. Uh, right, So if the front end is uh, what's on your screen, or in the case of Take, what's in your ears, so the content that the medium enables, the back end is the decisions made by algorithms about which content to show you in the first place. Uh, and people nowadays attribute most of the harm of social media to this kind of back end layer, to algorithms that are trying to maximize engagement and spread, and therefore uh, favor polarizing uh, hateful content. Now, with talking, we're trying to be very mindful of both the front end and the back end of this media landscape. We're very hopeful about what could happen if we successfully bring the front end of long-form recorded audio to scale and making it work well. Um, but at the same time, we're mindful that part of what we're trying to do is bring social spread to the audio landscape, which is to some extent part of this kind of back end layer uh, of the medium landscape. Uh, so nowadays in podcast space, I listen to my podcast, you listen to your podcast, 
there's very little spread within this ecosystem. Uh, and that's actually one of the problems we're trying to solve. We want to bring social spread um, to this long-form audio uh, medium. Uh, but there is this concern, right? Once we allow this spread, do we bring the destructive forces of the backend medium that people nowadays recognize uh, to this, you know, pristine podcast landscape? Now, we do think there's reasons to be hopeful about this when it comes to long-form audio, uh, mostly just because the media of long-form audio is so different from the other media we're used to. Uh, for one thing, the worst content that we're used to just cannot stand really in you know, long-form audio space. Uh, it just sounds ridiculously simplistic and it doesn't pass the test of can you speak about this coherently for one minute. Uh, for another thing, even if we do break up content and allow it to propagate, it still propagates very differently, right? We show you a clip that is maybe eight minutes long and now you decide you want to hear more. Uh, you don't judge based on a title that then might seek to make itself uh, you know, inflammatory and divisive in order to increase its spread. Uh, yeah, so what do you think about this kind of front-end versus back-end of the media landscape? Uh, is this even a useful division to have in your mind? Uh, is there anything that can be done to kind of improve the medium itself in productive ways? Or, you know, some people say there's nothing you can do. The medium is really capitalism itself. Uh, the company will eventually seek to maximize its profits, and this will cause, you know, disruptive effects. So, uh, yeah, very curious to hear what you think about all this. Thanks for that question, Atai. Um, it's rather a big question. Um, it's really, I think, kind of the crucial question, front end versus back end. Um, as we all know, the back end is where the action is. Uh, you said media literacy is at an all-time high. And that may, may be the case. In fact, it is case, but... Um, for the most part, I don't, I don't think too much about media literacy because, uh, okay, I, <laughs> that's kind of brutal. That that is to say, media literacy is generally front end kind of stuff, whereas um, it doesn't generally usually address the back end uh, too much, and it's it's the back end that really that really gets you. Uh, things like uh, algorithms, uh, things like, as you say, uh, capitalism or the, the profit motive. Um, so, you know, what, what actually powers innovation uh, at any scale is uh, capital and uh, the desire of people to sustain and increase their, their wealth, their personal wealth. Uh, and whereas um, a lot of a lot of things start out from a more humanitarian uh, ideal or goal, um, you know, even perhaps talk it this app, uh, maybe not Facebook because we all know what that started out as, <laughs> but um, certainly there's. Uh, there's often a kind of utopian uh, public good uh, kind of motivation behind designing things like social media. Honestly, I, I think people have the best intentions. 
but um, when it when it comes to making it scale, uh, sometimes there are difficult choices to make. Um, and when you get uh, venture capitalists, when you get shareholders involved, um, you know you end up having to design things uh, to make sure that uh, you know you appease them or, uh, you know, any, any money comes with strings. So that's when things often spiral, uh, a little bit out of control or go a bit sideways from where things started. And, um, what do you do about that? That's, it's difficult. Now, uh, another way to go, um, is crowdfunding, you know, so instead of, uh, you know, one person giving you the money to do something, going to the community, um, and you know, the community has sometimes different goals than simply recouping value. But that is um, often the the more difficult road. But um, it allows for a lot of design freedom and. Uh, that might be part of the answer uh, toward getting out of this this cycle, and you know I'm very concerned with with human flourishing. Um, it's very parasitic, you know, to kill the host, and um, for myself, I'd like to see people thrive and not just survive and. Um, I'd like to see us improve things in the world. And I think uh, I'm sure we can do it. Um, I, I share what I believe was my my grandfather's and my father's um, underlying hope uh, and, and faith, really, um, that, uh, you know, as, as humans, we engineer ourselves into these messes and... I'm certain we can engineer ourselves out of them. Uh, we just need to have the the will to do so. And that will can come around various ways. Uh, sometimes we need helping hands. Um, but it is, it is, you're right, it is that back end where we're the change happens and where if we want to provoke change needs to happen. So um, we need to think about how we can, uh, if you want, democratize the back end, uh, allow for not just transparency, but um, agency, I guess, and I think that's going to involve a lot more than managing our cookies. Twitter user at Floydberg asked this. Is the medium, is the massage thing a typo or a joke? Is the massage thing an in-joke or a typo? Or is it a bit of column A and a bit of column B? You know, I've always wondered that. The... Um, <laughs> The popular line is that uh, it was supposed to be the medium is the message, 
and the galleys came back and somebody messed up and put the medium as the massage and Marshall said, no, 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 leave it. It's great because, yeah, it is. It massages us. It works us over completely. Um, and sure, maybe. Um, also, maybe it's a bit apocryphal. <laughs> uh, I think it works a little too well to be a typo myself, but it does make for a good story. I'm going to close uh, by responding to this this question. Um, does the song Video Killed the Radio Star have any known McLuhan roots? Um, unknown to me, that is. I've, I've never heard that. Um, however, uh, I would suggest that uh, it wasn't video that killed the radio star. Um, perhaps the radio star uh, killed themselves. That is, they found themselves in deep water and didn't bother trying to swim. Um, it's interesting to note that uh, Marshall McLuhan first said the medium is the message in 1958 in Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada, at a radio broadcasters conference. And um, back in 2010 or so, I was doing an inventory of his library, his personal working library, and I found a note he'd written saying, uh, I first used this phrase in 1958, at a radio broadcaster's conference in Vancouver. Um, and he goes on to say, I was trying to tell them that TV couldn't end radio. And his point was that obsolescence never means death. You know, we come up with a new thing and it makes the old thing uh, obsolete, but it doesn't kill it. I mean, case in point, um, you heard that song on the radio, you know, <laughs> uh, radio's still here. Um, different media do different things and, uh, the one might gain in popularity, but that doesn't mean that the other one's dead. In fact, the other one usually has a rebirth, uh, and there's a lot of opportunity there. Um, so, uh, I'd be interested in, in knowing the answer to that question, uh, definitively, but to my knowledge, uh, that is, I've never, I've never heard one way or the other about that. Um, and thank you very much, uh, for everyone's questions, uh, here today on Talk It, uh, AMA with Andrew McLuhan, director of the McLuhan Institute. Um, I appreciate it. It's been a lot of fun. If you're interested in what I do, follow the McLuhan Institute on Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, Substack. If you go to the McLuhanInstitute.com, it should have hopefully working links to all those things. Um, thank you for being here. And uh, to the people behind TalkIt, good luck with the platform. It's, uh, it's a lot of fun, and I hope it does well. Take care of yourself and each other.
So now that it's clear that the three key themes in Marshall McLuhan's understanding of media are the extensions of the man, basically the thesis that media technologies are extensions of human bodies, um, then the notion of a global village, and also McLuhan's famous aphorism, of course, that the medium is the message. So now let's tune into 30 minutes of uninterrupted talks by the McLuhan clan. In the early 50s, you predicted that the world was becoming a global village. We're going back into the bicameral mind, which is tribal, collective, without any individual consciousness. But it seems, Dr. McLuhan, that this, this, this tribal world is not friendly. Oh, no. Tribal people, uh, one of their main uh, kinds of sport is uh, sort of butchering each other. It's, you know, it's a, it's a full-time sport in tribal societies. But I had some ideas. We got global and tribal. We, you know, we were going the to close, become... A... The closer you get together, the more you like each other. Yeah. There's no evidence of that in any situation that we, we've ever heard of. That when people get close together, they get more and more uh, savagely uh, impatient with each well, other. Well, why is that? Because of the nature of man? or, yeah, or uh... His tolerance is uh, tested in, the, in those narrow circumstances very much. Village people aren't that much in love with each other. And the global village is a place of very arduous interfaces and very abrasive situations. Do you see any uh, pattern of this in, for example, the desires of Quebec to separate? I, sh I should think that they are feeling very abrasive about the uh, English community and about the, the way the, uh, South, the, the American South felt about the Yankee North a hundred years ago. And is this dis distancing, is this going to be a pattern right around the world? Apparently, uh, separatisms are uh, very frequent all over the globe at the present time. Every country in the world is loaded with regionalistic, nationalistic little groups. But in Quebec, for example, they dis define it as the, the quest for identity. Yes, all forms of violence are a quest for identity. When you live out on the frontier, you have no identity, you're a nobody, therefore you get very tough. You have to prove that you are somebody. And so you become very violent. And so identity is always accompanied by violence. This uh, it seems paradoxical to you, that uh, ordinary, ordinary people uh, find the need for violence as they lose their identities. So it's only the threat to people's identity that makes them violence. Terrorists, hijackers, these are people minus identity. They are determined to make it somehow, to get coverage, to get noticed. And all this is somehow an effect of the electronic age? Oh, no. But people in, in, in all times have been this way. Mm -hmm. But in our time, when things happen very quickly, there's very little time to adjust to new situations at the speed of light. There's very little time to get accustomed to anything. One of the big uh, violent make, violence makers of, the, of, our, of our century has been radio. Uh, Hitler was entirely a radio man and a tribal man. And what does television do then to that tribal man? Well, I don't think Hitler would have lasted long on TV. Like Senator Joe McCarthy, he would have looked foolish. He was uh, a very hot character. And uh, like Nixon, made a, Nixon? made a very bad image on television. He was far too hot a character. Much better on radio or on, uh, uh, on, yeah, on the movies. Not bad on the movies, which will take quite hot characters. But Nixon was hopeless on TV. <laughs>
the, the, the investigations now of the, the CIA and the FBI and even our own, God forbid, RCMP, is this, has this anything to do with the electronic well, age? Well, yes, because it, we now have the means to keep everybody under surveillance. In any, no matter what part of the world they're in, we can put uh, them under surveillance. It has become one of the main occupations of mankind, just watching other people and keeping a record of their goings-on. And invading privacy. Invading privacy, in fact, just ignoring it. It's, it's, uh, everybody has become porous. They, they got, they got the, light, the light and the, and the messages go right through us. As, by the way, at this moment, right. uh, we are on the air, and right. we, at, on the air we do not have any physical body. When you're on the telephone or on radio or on TV, you don't have a physical body. You're just an image on the air. When you don't have a physical body, you're a discarnate being. You have a very different relation to the world around you. And this, I think, has been one of the big effects of the electric age. It has deprived people, really, of their private identity. So that's what this is doing to me? Yes. Everybody uh, tends to merge his identity with other people at the speed of light. It's called being mass man. By the way, one of the big marks of the loss of identity is nostalgia. And so revivals on all hands in every, in every phase of life today. Revivals of clothing, of dances, of music, of shows, of everything. We live by the revival. It tells us who we are or were. Do you feel that the fact that you and I are have enjoyed the rewards of literacy, that we are more protected against television than... Yes, I think you get a certain immunity. Just as you get a certain immunity from uh, booze by literacy. The, the, man, the literate man can carry his liquor, the tribal man cannot. That's why in the Muslim world or in the, in, in the native world, you cannot... Uh, booze is impossible. It's the demon rum. However, literacy also, though, makes us very accessible to ideas and propaganda. The literate man is the natural sucker for propaganda. You cannot propagandize a native. You can sell him rum and trinkets, but you cannot sell him ideas. Therefore, propaganda is our Achilles heel. It's our weak point. We will buy anything if it's got a good uh, hard sell tied to it. What now briefly is this thing called media ecology? It means arranging various media to help each other so they won't cancel each other out, to buttress one medium with another. The, you might say, for example, that radio is a bigger help to literacy than television. Mm -hmm. But television might be a very wonderful aid to teaching languages. And so uh, you can do some things on some media that you cannot do on others. And therefore, if you watch the whole field, you can prevent this waste that comes by one cancelling the other out. In 15 well, um, seconds, I've got one no, question for you. How yeah. much television do you watch? Whenever I get a chance. <laughs> not too often. I used to hear all the time, Marshall McLuhan was ahead of his time. He could see the future. He was ahead of his time. He wasn't. He was ahead of the people around him. <laughs> so he wasn't ahead of his time, he was ahead of his contemporaries. Uh, as to the future, well, he said the, the future is already here. And if you look around, you'll see it in embryo. But you will see it. Um, 
So he had developed a set of tools that enabled him to look around and see what other people couldn't see because they weren't thinking or using the right uh, approach. Uh, now, those same tools that he used, and he wrote books about them, like From Cliché to Archetype, or uh, Through the Vanishing Point, or The Executive is Dropout, or Understanding Media. Uh, the whole front of Understanding Media are seven chapters about seven different tools that you can use. In a sense, you've been a historian uh, as you've gone about your work. And uh, let's talk first a little, if we may, about your book, The Gutenberg Galaxy, where you argue that for a long time, without actually understanding it, we've been living in a, a, a culture which, in which our whole way of looking at the world has been determined by type, typography, by mm. the successiveness of print and so on. Would you like to enlarge on that a bit? Well, I remember I decided to write that book when I came across a piece by J.C. Carruthers, the anthrop uh, a psychiatrist, on the African mind in health and disease, describing the effects of the printed word on the uh, African populations. It startled me and uh, des uh, decided me to uh, plunge in. But the, we, we have a better opportunity in uh, seeing our old technologies when they confront uh, other populations uh, elsewhere in the world. The effects they have on those people are so startling and so sudden that we have an opportunity to see what happened to us over many centuries. Yes, which we couldn't see because we're inside mm. the system. Yeah. Uh, don't you say that um, what happened was that we got used to having our information processed uh, as it is in, um, in, in print. That is to say, it's set out successively, whereas at the root of your thoughts perhaps there's the view that uh, we can see the world as an image instantaneously but that we've chosen under the pressure of a technology to set it out successively like a, a block of print well every technology has its own ground rules as it were it decides uh, all sorts of uh, arrangements in other spheres the uh, fact of uh, script and uh, the ability to make inventories and collect data and uh, store data uh, changed uh, many uh, social habits and processes uh, back as early as 3000 BC. Uh, the, uh, however, that's about as early as it, uh, as it uh, scripts uh, began. The, uh, the effects of uh, rearranging one's experience, organizing one's experience by these new extensions of our powers are quite unexpected. Perhaps one way of putting it is to say that Writing represents a high degree of specializing of our powers. Yes. Uh, compared to preliterate uh, societies, uh, there is a considerable concentration on one faculty when you develop a, 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 skill, a skill like scripting. And this is the visual, what you call the visual. Yes, this, uh, this is a highly specialized stress uh, compared to anything in uh, ordinary oral societies. There, there have been many studies made of this in various ways. But in our own Western world, the rise of the phonetic alphabet seems to have had much to do with platonic culture and the ordering of experience in the terms of ideas, classifying of data and experience by ideas. You mean that, the, that sight has become the preeminent sense, as it was for Plato, oh. and it went on being so in so-called civilized as opposed to in, primitive Increasingly societies. so. 
Uh, to reach the climax with uh, with the invention of printing. Printing stepped it up to a considerable pitch. Yes. Now, how would you how would you describe the the uh, uh, impact of the invention of the printing press? Give us some instances well, of what happened as a consequence of this. It created almost uh, overnight. It created what we call a nationalism. What in fact a fact uh, effect was a public. The or uh, old uh, manuscript forms they were not sufficiently powerful instruments of technology to create publics in the sense that print was able to do. Unified, homogeneous, reading publics. Everything that uh, we prize in our Western world in matters of individualism and separatism and uh, of unique point of view, a private judgment, all those factors are highly favored by the printed word and uh, not really favored by other forms of uh, culture like radio or, and, uh, or earlier by even by manuscript. But this uh, stepping up of the fragmented, the private, the individual, the private judgment, the point of view, all, in fact, our whole vocabularies underwent huge change with the arrival of such technology. Yes. Could I ask you now about the, the, the technology which, on your view, is superseding it and which is having its own effect on our lives, uh, comparable with, but of course entirely different in kind to the well, Gutenberg technology. The Gutenberg technology, technology was in mechanical to uh, an extreme degree. In fact, uh, it originated a good deal of the later mechanical revolution, um, assembly line style, and uh, the fragmentation of, of operations and functions uh, as, the t as the very rationale of industrialization. Yes. Uh, this uh, fragmentation had begun uh, much earlier with uh, uh, after the hunter and the food gatherers with Neolithic man. It, I suppose in an extreme way one might say that Gutenberg was the last phase of the Neolithic revolution. Uh, Gutenberg plus the industrial revolution that followed was uh, a pushing of specialism that came in with the Neolithic man, the uh, uh, agrarian revolution, a pushing of specialism all the way and then suddenly uh, we encounter the electric uh, or electromagnetism, uh, which seems to have a totally different principle, is, in, for, uh, for some people feel, an extension of our uh, nervous system, uh, not an extension of, uh, merely of our bodies. Mm. The, uh, if the wheel is an extension of feet and tools of hands, back, arms, uh, the uh, electromagnetism seems to be, in its technological manifestations, an extension of our nerves and becomes mainly an information system. It is, above all, a feedback or looped system. Yes. The peculiarity, you see, uh, uh, after the age of the wheel, you suddenly encounter the age of the circuit. Yes. Uh, the wheel pushed, pushed to an extreme suddenly acquires opposite characteristics. Yes. This seems to happen with a good many technologies, that if they get pushed to a very uh, dist uh, distant point, they reverse the characteristics. What difference is the... Is the Understanding Media, The Extensions of Man, was published in 1964. And in it, McLuhan observed that a medium was an environment of services and disservices and adjustments that accompanied each new technological innovation. Ecology was the big buzzword of the time because Rachel Carson had published a book just a couple of years earlier, 1962, and alerted people to toxic environmental effects. Uh, and, of course, this was the hippie era in which everybody was becoming very active. Uh, and also, many had suddenly become aware of the growth of the world's population, so zero population growth was a concern. Uh, following Buckminster Fuller, people now talked about Spaceship Earth.
um, there is no room on spaceship Earth for passengers. There's only crew. This is the sort of thinking that was going on. The new surround of satellites and global information had made the globe itself the content of a man-made environment. The global village uh, of radio would soon turn into the global theater we now inhabit. Increasingly, people were voicing concern about the side effects of burning fossil fuels and of dumping garbage and chemicals into the rivers and oceans. However, 50 years ago, in 1968, ecology was not yet a formal science, and while there was a lot of concern, there was no activism. Our sciences were superb at specialist tasks. They just didn't have the tools for managing simultaneous systems. Environmental ecology was a completely new and foreign way of thinking, and so was the idea of media ecology. Ecology is the science of the entire natural environment and the effects of releasing various substances into the earth and the air and the water. Uh, ecologists attempt to understand the effects, both local and global, of all the various pollutants and dilutions. As much as air and water, man-made media are environments, the garments worn by each technology. Since Understanding Media, the book, the terms medium and environment have been synonymous. They consist of all the services and disservices and rearrangements in the scale and pace of life and culture and self that we make in accommodating ourselves to the new technologies. Marshall McLuhan declared these things unmistakably in the second or third paragraph of Understanding Media. Here's what he wrote. <clears throat> For the message of any medium or technology is the change of scale or pace that it introduces into human affairs. The railway did not introduce movement or transportation or wheel or road into human society, but it accelerated and enlarged the scale of previous human functions, creating totally new kinds of cities and new kinds of work and leisure. This happened whether the railway functioned in a tropical or a northern environment and is quite independent of the freight or content of the railway medium. This fact merely underlines the point that the medium is the message because it is the medium that shapes and controls the scale and form of human association and action. The content or uses of such media are as diverse as they are intellectual in shaping the form of human association. Indeed, it's only too typical that the content of any medium blinds us to the character of the medium. The content absorbs the attention of the user, and by doing that, it, it diverts attention away from everything else. In other words, the study of media is really the study of ignorance. After returning from the year at Fordham, McLuhan made the following observations. Uh, it is now perfectly plain to me that all media are environments. As environments, all media have all the effects that geographers and biologists 
have associated with environments in the past. Environments, sh environments shape their occupants. One person complaining about my observation that the medium is the message simply said, McLuhan means that the medium has no content. This remark was extremely useful to me because it revealed the obvious, namely, the content of any medium is the user. This applies equally to electric lights, any language whatever, and of course housing, motor cars, even tools of any sort, and you might say microphones. It is obvious that the user or content of any medium is completely conformed to the character of this man-made environment. His entire sensory life arranges its hierarchies and dominance in accordance with the environment in which he operates. When the sensory inputs are dim, the sensory response is correspondingly strong. This is why small children are always poetic in their responses to anything at all. As we grow older, we dim down the sensory responses and increase the sensory inputs, turning ourselves into robots. That is why art is indispensable for human survival. Art perpetually dislocates our usual sensory responses by offering a very abstract or meager and selective input. The medium is the message because the environment transforms our perceptions governing the areas of attention and neglect alike. Parallel, paralleling the relation between ecology and the natural environment, media ecology is the science of these psychic and social environments. Every new medium then imposes an entirely new culture. Think of print. Think of the smartphone. Let me mention two of the larger features of the present media ecological environment. First, note that the West, and in fact the whole world, is presently in the grip of the largest and grandest renaissance in human history. It's going on all around us right this moment. Generally now, renaissances are invisible to the people who are involved in them. Having begun in the mid-19th century, this renaissance shows no signs whatever of abating. Instead, it shows every, every sign of accelerating. Hey, you made it this far. Welcome to the last section of the audio magazine. This will be a long-form 50-minute talk by Marshall McLuhan. Um, which he gave in Fordham University in 1968. I considered like 20 different pieces of long-form content for this section, and I decided to go with this one because, uh, first of all, the sound quality is not too bad, even though it's very old. It's very interesting. Uh, it's like a nice, deep discussion, and Marshall explores a lot of, uh, like a pretty versatile set of the interesting points that he usually speaks about. Here's James Joyce in Film, a lecture series by Marshall McLuhan from 1968. Enjoy. Since the theme tonight is film, I will mention right off that film is a hot medium as compared to TV. Uh, and uh, therefore, it has uh, 
much less power to involve the whole man than, than TV, or involve in the sense of drag people into its planes. His approach to film is in the section called the Ont and the Grace Hopper. The Ont is a motor car, and the Grace Hopper is an airplane. And the Ont is the film, and the Grace Hopper is TV. Now, I'll, I'll just mention why they happen to pop up in that illustrative role. Joyce, I think, quite correctly saw that the motor car is very much like a movie camera, with the driver really in charge of screen and camera alike, and having a moving picture uh, on his own. The, the driver of a motor car is by way of being a movie unit. Now, this isn't true of airplane. But the uh, motor car extends the feet of man. The driver of a motor car is a kind of paraplegic, very much like uh, someone seated in a movie theater looking at the great screen, the great environment outdoors. And uh, the movie is an extension of the human eyes, uh, the eyes extended pr prodigiously by means of the feet. Actually, in biologically or physiologically, the um, eyes are on a platform provided by the feet. The feet, I mean, the physiologists put it somewhat in those terms, that man's eyes are provided with a mobile moving platform of feet. And um, the uh, fish are in a somewhat different position with regard to the use of the eye. But the movie as an extension of feet and eye is very different from TV, which is really an extension of the whole body. And the TV camera is much more an extension of the hand than it is of the feet or the eyes. The TV scanning finger uh, actively moves through and over objects. And uh, the TV uh, camera has really very few characteristics in common with the movie camera. It has no shutter. It doesn't take pictures. And uh, it handles its, the human environment. Moreover, the TV viewer is the screen, not the camera. The movie viewer is camera, his eyes go out at the world. The movie viewer looks at the world, which is enormously extended, enlarged, and made available to him. The TV uh, viewer does not look at the world, it looks at him. He is the screen. The TV viewer, uh, I'm, I'm saying, of course, that between the movie and the TV form, there is a profound antithesis a profound opposition. And whereas the, t the TV viewer is the screen with the image coming at him in Joyce's phrase, which he uses throughout the whole of Innigan's Wake, the TV viewer receives the charge of the light brigade. He is the valley of death, as it were. <laughs> and um, the TV tube is a charge of light particles that literally and physically move at the audience and cover you. Those little dots on the screen move onto you. Those little uh, particles of light invest the viewer and wrap around him. The TV viewer, uh, TV viewer is wrapped up in the space 
of the TV image which goes around him. And the, in becoming the environment, instead of being detached as the movie viewer is and looking at an environment, in becoming an environment, the TV viewer, and this is true of all our youngsters since TV, feels profoundly part of the world. This amazing sophistication and sense of belonging to the world and feeling at home in all parts of the world, which is characteristic of those children for whom TV was a, an early experience, who had TV long before they learned to read and write. In my own family, there's a profound difference between the children who learned to read and write before TV and those who learned to read and write after TV. They have completely different habits of mind and, and social association. The uh, children who learn to read and write after TV are in a much more profound group, much more serious, grim if you like. The TV gener generation of youngsters is grim. They're not lighthearted, they're not playful, they're not detached. They have none of the fantasy of the old movie world or the old book world about them. They're deeply involved. They take everything very seriously. <clears throat> and, um, well, a lot, including a lot of things that would be better to be handled more playfully. I'm not trying to make value judgments here. I'm not trying to say that uh, the TV is good or bad or that movie is good or bad. I'm just trying to make a distinction between their mode of operation. And Joyce has this fascinating section. It's uh, in the Thunder Number 9 of Finnegan's Wake that he deals with the Unt and the Grasshopper. Then in Thunder Number 10 on page 424, he goes straight over to TV and deals with the TV world as such. It's the last thunder in the book. The thunders, by the way, in Finnegan's Wake are moments of huge technological innovation and impact on society. The thunder is the rumble of social change response to new technology in the whole human society. The uh, thunder is simply the uh, kind of world applause or response uh, to novelty and innovation. And there are 10 of these thunders, each one of which is very carefully worked out in terms of things like motor cars and telegraphs and television and movies. Now, the TV as plane is much more, you see, the, uh, the, an airplane is not the extension of the feet or the hands, it's an extension of the entire body simultaneously. And that's why it brings it very much closer to TV than, than it does to movie. The, um, all technologies, whatever, are extensions of our own physiology and our own sensory life. Naturally, when you extend these forms into the environment and make environments out of them, it has a profound effect on the rest of, the rest of our makeup. Now, the artists of the 19, later 19th century gave us a sort of preview of this coming change. Whereas the photograph tended to scare artists away from realistic presentation, representation of the world, the coming of electric technology was felt in the artist's radar system, as it were. And a man like Sura or Ruo 
responded by creating a new uh, visual form in painting uh, that is called pointillism, or as, as in the case of Rouault, painting on stained glass uh, with the light coming through the object rather than light on object. And both of these painters were very much aware that if you want to create a huge involvement on the part of the audience, you must do that. You must have rear light, rear projection. You must have the light coming through the object at the viewer rather than having the light falling on the object and the viewer looking at the object. In Seurat, in Pointillism, which is a, a, a form of TV, uh, Seurat was painting TV long before there was any TV in, in, in uh, Prospect. That is, in 1880, he was painting TV. He was painting this rear projection, all these little dots. He was, he was explicitly and consciously seeking to involve his reader in depth in the making process. The, the object of the artist in the later 19th century was to involve the viewer or the uh, audience in the making process. Edgar Allan Poe hit upon this with his detective story technique. He discovered that if you leave out all the connections in a story, the reader becomes profoundly involved in making them and in completing the story. The technique of the symbolist poem and the detective story of leaving things out creates huge involvement. TV leaves out most information. It's a very cool medium with very little uh, data provided in the image. The um, engineers say, the information engineers say, in a photograph, there's very little information but much data meaning by information they mean form. They say, on the other hand, in TV there is much information and very few data. That is, in the TV image there's not very many, there are not very many data, but there's lots of structure, lots of outline, lots of pattern. It's a cartoon form. It's iconic. Just a crude, rough image compared to the photograph. Now, when an image is rough and crude, like a storyboard in an advertising agency, there is profound involvement. When, when you polish it up, fill it in, complete it, then the viewer has no possibility of involvement. He's just left outside looking at a completed image. So paradoxically, TV creates much involvement because it provides so little in the way of data. The movie creates much less involvement because it's a much better image, provides far more data leaves the viewer outside enjoying the image in a relative detachment. <coughs> there are many popular misconceptions about this, uh, but I'm not, uh, I'm not, I won't try to deal with them now. Uh, we'll perhaps have a question period or a question answer period at the end. There's a, an old story you've probably heard before about two goats that were chomping on an old uh, batch of films that had been thrown out behind an MGM studio in Hollywood. And one of the goats uh, kicked open a, an old tin that held a picture of Gone with the Wind and sort of signaled to his neighbor to come on, try some of this. When his pal came along and nibbled a bit of Gone with the Wind, the first one said, how do you like that? After a little meditation, the other one said, oh, well, I think I like the book better. <laughs> uh, it's, it's not, that's not intended as a profound insight into the, <clears throat> into the media, but it's somewhat like the sort of insights one often hears. The, uh, 
Speaking of the charge of the Light Brigade as, as a TV form, um, involving us in ourselves, one of the strange effects of TV, of course, is to drive us inward. Uh, the TV generation is a depth-oriented generation, and if there's any value in depth and profundity, we're going to get it from the TV generation as never before. Um, I think uh, there's something to be said to, for the, the world of Mae West and Harold Lloyd as well. Uh, a little playfulness, a little coon, uh, uh, what are they called? coon skinism in the way of uh, frivolity, playfulness and so on has its advantages over profundity at times. But the Aqualung people, you see, are unwitting victims of TV and all the underwater divers are trying to simulate TV environments which they can have much less expense at home in front of the TV set. The TV viewer is a sort of underwater diver. He lives in an, an element of total submersion and total involvement that is of low definition, very low uh, visual quality. I have heard skin divers arguing bitterly about the desecration of the underwater landscape by irresponsible skin divers, you know, like the old complaints about uh, tourists who left tin cans and things around in public places. You know, the the, there's now developing a league to protect underwater landscapes from the desecration of travelers and tourists. And uh, so it's uh, the, quite, a, quite a, a novel form of complaint. There's another story I've heard recently that helps with some aspects of <clears throat> media. It concerns uh, Mel Rowe, the uh, Minister of Culture for uh, de Gaulle, taking de Gaulle on a tour of a, an art gallery. And as they move through various paintings, de Gaulle would say, and what's that one? Ah, says Mel Rowe, that is a Dufy. Mm -hmm. And that one, ah, that is a Renoir. Then de Gaulle brightened up. As they moved on a little further, he said, uh-huh, I see uh, that monstrous-looking cartoon effect over there. That must be a Rouault. No, sir, said Monroe, that is a mirror. <laughs> uh, this is not to, this is to reveal the strange results of light through as a, compared to light on. Uh, it, uh, it's not intended as derogatory to anybody, whatever. <laughs> one, of, one of the amazing dimensions of film, as it was reflected in the novel, was stream of consciousness. Cinema, or moving images, when translated into prose, came, produced this quite a wonderful effect, stream of consciousness. And the stream of consciousness writers discovered to their surprise that the reader could get far more emp empathy, involvement in the mental processes of characters by disconnected, broken shots than they could by simple storyline interpretation. This uh, is still a mystery, that is the uh, relation of stream of consciousness to the developing movie technologies is also uh, an area that uh, is richly illustrated in symbolist poetry and I find it useful sometimes in teaching Mr. Elliot's poetry to point out how the proof rock world is very much a Charlie Chaplin sort of comedy. 
and uh, with the shots. The shots are very much in the style of early silence, uh, with a sort of jazz effects. Mr. Elliot is from St. Louis and uh, brought the blues to Britain, to British poetry. There again, a very curious thing, speaking of light and shade and sound. The blues, as a form of involving, are famous. And if you have a, a bright, smart, cheerful, or any kind of melody completely tied in, it is a much less effective means of involving people than syncopation with its breaks and discontinuities which compel people to fill them in. The um, strange, uh, I suppose the word blues, uh, permits this direct encounter of forms, uh, like uh, syncopation itself. Instead of a nice, smooth, melodic line, you have these abrupt interruptions which permit far more involvement. The, um, the world of uh, Mozart is a very pictorial world in musical terms. That is, there's much light and shade in it and much foreground and background and perspective. Many of the spaces in Mozartian music are arranged just exactly like a Fragonard painting or a Boucher painting. You can have spaces, visual spaces, introduced into music. Auditory space is a very uh, fascinating type of space, quite different from visual space. And this ties in with this matter of storyline. Visual space is con continuous and connected. Anything that causes visual space to be upgraded in a culture will cause also respect for unity and continuity and connectedness. Anything that, this is true only of the visual sense, the um, other senses don't have this built-in characteristic of unity, uh, connectedness, uniformity, and so on. There is no uniformity or connectedness in hearing or in uh, touch, as Alec Layton put it, to the blind all things are sudden. Blind people don't have a sense of uniform continuous space. They live in a world of abrupt discontinuities and uh, insights. The ancient world had the blind man always as the very type of the seer the sage, the insight man. Uh, because his, uh, being deprived of the merely visual sense, he was in a position to plunge depth, insights into situations. Well, the world of the stream of consciousness is, is very much in debt in the novel and in poetry to the movie form. And one thing that I would like to add to Tony's observations about the tape recorder, it has made us very conscious of sounds in our environment of which we are ordinarily unconscious. John Cage has a definition of silence in which he says, silence consists of all those sounds that are unintended. All the unintended sounds in the environment constitute silence. And it is the unintended sounds in the environment that the tape recorder and such instruments can now put right into the concert hall. This is why this happened with the photograph when it was new. The photograph brought images into the popular press, magazines, 
that that are images of things in the human environment of which people were completely unaware. The one thing that people do not see is their environment. They see the previous environment, not the actual one. Uh, this, uh, anyway, with the photograph, people began to notice the actual state of their cities, their yards, their homes, their houses, their clothing, the way they looked for the first time, say a century ago. And just as the tape recorder is brought into our environment, the sounds that are unintended brought into the concert hall, so the photograph brought into the world of direct attention and inspection a whole world of images that people ordinarily ignored. Now, one of the effects of the tape recorder, you can see, is to compel people to regard the sound environment as a work of art. Many electric tendencies in our environment today encourage people to begin to think about the possible programming of the human environment as if it were a work of art. Instead of worrying about what you put inside art galleries, taking a direct approach to the environment itself as a work of art. The Balinese have a saying, we have no art, we do everything as well as possible. They're quite aware of the fact that the Westerner regards art as a sometime thing that can be put into a special little space while the rest of the, the, rest of the environment can be just anything. However, to get back onto the, um, the movie has notice, noticeably become much more of an art form in popular and even uh, erudite estimation since TV. Since TV, movie have go, of course is the movie is the old environment, TV goes around it as new environment, movie goes up as art form. Yes, uh, it's, uh, it's really very noticeable that since TV, movie has become art form, old silence, old movies of any sort are now cherished and regarded with new awe and reverence. And this happened, this has happened over and over again in the human past. Every time a new form goes around an old form, the old form becomes an art form. It's like old uh, coach lamps, old buggies, old model tees, old anything. They all become art forms. It's like Williamsburg. The Williamsburg treatment of old environments as if they were works of art. Um, now that the planet has a new environment, a man-made environment of satellites and electric information, <clears throat> you can depend upon it that the planet is itself going to become an art form. <laughs> that old nose cone, that old spacecraft, our planet, our human habitat is going to be tidied up with vast expenditure of thought and energy as the place where it all began. The old habitat to which one can return occasionally on a pilgrimage. <laughs> oh, there's strong evidence of this uh, as occurring already. One of the observations that comes to mind that has been made about sound, when sound came to film, photograph, when the, when the, the photograph suddenly had a soundtrack put on it around it, when radio was put around film. The effect, of, the effect of sound on images was extraordinary and it, as you remember perhaps, was very disrupting. It caused much heartburn and heartache 
and uh, much tossing out of old stars, John Gilberts and so on, because the radio image is a hot image, the photograph is a hot image, and when those two hot images get together, they do things to each other. They compel the movie camera to become a much more hi-fi, much more precise. One of the reasons for the charm of the old silence is that they're so lo-fi. They're very much like TV, which is real lo-fi. The silence are closer to TV, well, so is Batman, so are the comics, than they are to movies. And one of the observations that has been made about the coming of sound to movies was that instead of just presenting a sequence or story in a series of pictures, the tendency of sound was to cause the camera to dwell on each shot in depth and to include the whole story, as it were, in each shot. The shot became inclusive rather than exclusive. And this compelled all sorts of subtle mastery of form that was a considerable strain on the industry. It, um, well, I think you might say that it knocked some countries right out of the movie business, partly because of the vast new expense of sound and uh, the new virtuosity needed for photography. And some of the leading countries in film production were knocked right out of the business. Uh, they didn't have the resources. The, um, however, that's merely uh, incidental. The, um, since TV, however, there has been much weakening of the storyline in film. TV is not a narrative medium. It doesn't need narratives. The individual shot is very inclusive, just like a cartoon. A cartoon is not a picture, and it has no point of view. It includes all possible point of view, points of view in each cartoon. Dagwood or uh, Little Abner or anybody, each, of the, each cartoon is complete. It's total. It's the whole image of that person in all his possible modalities. This isn't true of photography. Photography is highly specialist. It selects an aspect, a moment in the life of the thing. The cartoon does not select a moment in the life of the thing, and the photograph does. The movie does. And this high selectivity in time, just the isolated moment creates a very strange world. Storyline is very helpful and needful in film when it uses hi-fi photography, but in lo-fi, as in a chaplain, the need for intense uh, connectedness is much smaller. In TV, the need for connectedness is much less than in movie, for the same reason, and the uh, viewer can fill in at liberty many of the connecting missing bits. 
In the case of the influence of TV on movies, it might, I, I expect it might be illustrated by the sudden growth of the uh, interest in and the vogue for Dr. Zhivago's Fellini's, Bergman's, in which storyline is rather incidental and insignificant compared to the mood, the mode, the modulation and variation of single situations and images. This variation of theme, of mode, is taking the place of storyline since TV. And I think you'll find that our children, uh, the TV generation, are not nearly so interested in narrative or storyline, whether in library form or in film form, as um, their older brothers and sisters. The um, loss of interest in narrative and the sudden upgrading of facts, you know, the romance shows, the thing novel, the research novel, the sudden interest in just raw data in cold blood, in place of story. And again, going with this, no interest in point of view. The angle is not important. The reviewers of Capote's In Cold Blood were puzzled in some cases, and some observed that the murderer probably was the author, or <laughs> alternatively, the reader. It couldn't, have been, it couldn't have been those people in Kansas. Now, this, again, uh, a very confusing behavior on the part of our young, this indifference to ordinary responsibility and ordinary cause and effect in the older connected sense, storyline sense, this sense of involvement is so great that they no longer are too concerned about who done it or why. And um, this kind of involvement is almost an oriental thing, I think, in the t case of the TV generation. It goes along with a considerable loss of the sense of identity or a considerable loss of of any feeling of importance attaching to identity. As you know, the existentialists have long urged that what we call our personal private identity is really just a kind of visa or classification, uh, arbitrary set of data which have a rather incidental relation to anybody. But this mood, I'm not trying to argue a case here, I'm simply pointing to this change of mood and this Loss of sense of identity is uh, uh, perhaps in its most extreme form manifested in the LSD and the drug sort of crazies where people deliberately scrub off the tape of personal awareness. I want to, uh, having uh, just uh, made that kind of tour, I want to point out one of the strange things about the movie when it was new, the beginning of the century. It seemed hilarious, it seemed comic simply because it was so perfect a repeat of ordinary experience, ordinary living. It became, uh, the movie in its early phase was a parody of life, an imitation of life in a comic sense because it just went along parahadas against or along beside the track of real life. The picture track, the movie picture track, and the track of real life were almost interchangeable and this creates a very comic effect. Realism 
when new, is comic. Hilarious. Go back to the days of Sam Peeps and, uh, and uh, Daniel Defoe, and you'll see what I mean. With the coming of realism, prose realism, uh, it was a new mythic form that created a very comic and satiric world. This was the great age of satire. Realistic forms uh, created a comic and satiric effect in the case of Pepys, Diary, and in the case of Defoe, Robinson Crusoe sort of thing. One of the reviewers of Robinson Crusoe said, Mr. Defoe has represented the British Isles as totally depopulated. <laughs> this I found a very valuable and comical sidelight on the effect of realism on people for whom realism was new. The um, Valerie, the uh, symbolist poet, said of the movie, it is the complete, perfect, mechanical form of memory, it visual memory. This is a, a fascinating and startling insight to think of the movie as a form of mem memory storage. Now anybody can see the book in that form. There's a certain sense in which the book is a, stor a storage system. Uh, the movie as a storage system, a visual storage system, a visual memory, points straight toward the computer as a storage system which takes on all the senses. The movie, though, as a visual, complete visual memory, terrified people in, the, in 1900 because it seemed to rob them of all their natural mental functions. The world of circuitry, of electric circuits, takes people profoundly inside themselves is a kind of entropic world. It folds us in. It creates a thing like the safety car. The safety car is the car turning in upon itself entropically. And entropy, you know, is the law of declining energies. The uh, entropy turning inward upon itself, the, car, the, the, uh, the safety car becomes a padded cell for maniacs to drive it. And most people, you know, are inclined to say when they hear about the safety car, but wouldn't anybody in a safety car go berserk? Wouldn't he just bump into everybody and everything? Isn't that a strange reaction? It's like the old, you remember the old bump cars at the, uh, at the circuses? They, they, some people tend to regard the safety car as a bump car in which you can really behave as if you're in a Sherman tank and you can just go rip-roaring <laughs> rip around knocking everybody helter-skelter. Um, but the, um, the tendency then of the movie to become uh, a kind of iconic form at first and then gradually a high-fi, high-definition form uh, le leads me to just say a word or two about the rise of the visual because the movie represented our Western world going into very top gear visual life and now with TV, we've slipped into very low gear visual life with a resulting change of psychosomatic adjustment and uh, change of mood. But I just want to say a couple of things, uh, especially with an audience like this, interested both in the book and film and other forms. I just wanted to draw your attention to this aspect, that the work of people uh, like Innocent Havelock, Havelock's preface to Plato sort of volume, and the work of 
Barfield, in a book called Saving the Appearances, have drawn attention to the fact that with the rise of uh, phonetic literacy, with the coming of phonetic literacy, people got a detachment from the world that the old native societies never were able to achieve. Phonetic literacy, by pushing up visual life into high intensity, gave people a form of detachment that was absolutely new in human history. It created the civilized man, the, the detribalized individual. And subsequent improve, improvements in writing and printing and bookmaking intensified that detachment. I'm talking about the medium as the message or the massage. You, if you live in an intensely visual world, you learn the habits of civilized detachment. If you live in an intensely auditory and tactile world, you learn the habits of empathy and involvement. But uh, Havelock describes in a most impressive way the stages by which the Greeks moved out of the world of Homer, the auditory poetic world, into the world of Plato and the visual classification of ideas and data. This is now presumably a tape that is being played backwards. We are now rapidly, thanks to electronic technology, moving from the world of Plato back to the world of Homer, from the world of intense visual classification back to the world of intense auditory involvement. We are easily confused on these issues uh, because they are very complicated issues. For example, it's easy to say and perhaps true to say. An artist never works because he uses all his faculties all the time, and that's play. When a person is using all of his faculties, all his senses, he's playing. He's creating. When you're making out your income tax or adding up figures, you're using only a small part of your faculties, that's work. In other words, the fragmented man works, the integral man plays. A child is creative until he learns to read and write. Children are all geniuses until the age of five or six because they're using all their faculties simultaneously. Then they learn to specialize and separate their faculties and, and become civilized. It's not simple, is it? It's not uh, all one thing or another thing. I think perhaps possibly there may be means eventually of an orchestration of these faculties, an orchestration of media, so that they will not uh, batter each other to bits and batter us to bits. To come back to storyline for a moment, Aristotle's famous remark in the Poetics about plots, and his remark, for example, that of all plots, the episodic are the worst, was referring to a very strange discovery in the Greek day Namely that if you began to take happenings, events, and tie them together in a line or a sequence, you could get a plot. Now, in actual fact, events never are tied together. They all happen simultaneously in real life, and most events are coincidental and overlay each other, and therefore they have no plot-like character whatever. To an Aristotle in his time, when, when visual life and visual order was new, 
the uh, tying of things together in a sequence was a dazzling discovery of visual order. And so with the dropping down of visual level, uh, the need for plot and the desire for plot also drops down. And you'll find very little of it in Fellini or Bergman or the Zhivago type of film. But to stay for a moment with the visual world as it came to us and eventually reached the high level of movie. With the coming of Gutenberg technology, uh, the handwritten manuscript went up into very hi-fi form. The old uh, manuscript was called, uh, for example, textura, meaning tapestry. Uh, to a medieval eye, there was very little difference between a tapestry and a handwritten page. So they called it textura. And um, with, when it went up into hi-fi visuality with Gutenberg repeatable type, it lost all that textura. The page lost the involvement of the reader. The reader became a detached spectator of the page. Silent reading became possible for the first time in the world. You can't have silent reading until you have printing, just as you can't have grammatical errors until you have writing. This is literally true. A child never makes a mistake in slang. No child ever made a, a, a grammatical mistake in the use of slang because, on the other hand, if he had to write it down or if teacher had to write it down, they'd both make mistakes in slang at once. Translating from the auditory to the visual form is very tricky. Very few people can accomplish it without slips. The bad speller, for example, is often a poet, a genius. People who of high auditory in, uh, orientation are very poor spellers. Uh, uh, the IQ testers uh, pay no attention to this fact. However, the, um, this business of Gutenberg visuality, stepping up things up to high intensity, made it possible for the first time in human history for the whole of society to become a rearview mirror with a historical perspective backwards. In the 16th century, what we call modern history was born, and the rearview mirror of life became a major fact. Everybody began to look backward, whether it was at the primitive church or at the wrongs done to his private family. Hamlet is a nice example of the rearview mirror. Here is a man totally alienated from the present world, look on this picture and on that, who was absolutely obsessed with the past events in his life. Oh, what a noble mind is here overthrown. He's a man in a mirror, looking at the past, incapable of coping with the present. Much of the art of his time was likewise, whether it was the Greek mythology being illustrated by painters, or uh, the mirror for magistrates with moral tales of evil deeds done in the past by virtuous men. All rearview mirror. But the great example of it is Paradise Lost, in which the whole of the human condition is used as a rearview mirror to get a view of the Garden of Eden. This is a fantastic achievement. It tends to uh, dwindle away a bit from that point into what is called later, the, a little later, the Graveyard School of Poetry, where people wandered around graveyards in order to meditate upon the human past, on mute and glorious Miltons and 
Cromwell's guiltless of their country's blood, but using the graveyard as a rearview mirror became a great artistic pastime. It ended suddenly with the Newtonian discovery of the uh, world as a mental mirror, the whole world as a mirror of the mind of man. The Romantics dropped history and began simply to meditate on the mirror of the human mind that was lay in the external page of, na of nature. Now, this was uh, stepping up the visual intensity of civilization a great deal, and photograph and film came not too long afterwards, and in them, the rearview mirror became very strong. You may have noticed that the Victorian novels all begin back 30, 40 years before the publication date of the book. They all were rearview rear mirrors, and nobody knows why. And no, uh, it, it wasn't even noticed at the time. But the novels of Scott and Dickens and everybody all start back 30 years before the publication date, just as a matter of course. The idea, again, of giving the world as it is right now came in much more with photo and with film. And with the rise of photographic realism, uh, the novelist, too, was affected, just as the painter was. The painter tended to turn more towards structural forms, and the novelist turned more towards structure and turned the novel more and more into poem. Flaubert created the first novel poems. A, a novel like uh, Madame Bovary is a poem in the sense that it is a simultaneous order. Everything that happens, happens at once and happens to everything else in the book. Well, to hurry on a bit, art under those conditions, art as structure rather than as realistic record, uh, became a probe. And uh, I think it is a very large revolution in human affairs when art ceased to be a rearview mirror, ceased to be a mere way of recording, and became a means of probing, experimenting, trying to discover what the world is, what it's made of. Art and science joined hands with the coming of the uh, symbolist and structural novels of the Flaubert type. Art as a probe or as a means of teaching perception is familiar in the phrase of people like Conrad, it is above all that you may see. They write in order that people may perceive what otherwise they're not going to perceive. Flaubert said, if people had read my sentimental education, there would not have been a Franco-Prussian war. And I don't think that he's exaggerating, but it means not only reading it, but perceiving what he's up to. But the, um, this changeover from art as a sort of elitish rearview mirror game, old masters, into a probe, a scientific means of discovery, is a, 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 a revolution that still rocks a lot of bandwagons and boats and uh, is a revolution that is felt still within the film industry as well as in the entertainment world in general. Whether or not art should be a means of discovery or should it just be a means of wrapping oneself around with the old environment in a sort of comfortable dream world. The art of 
The art of our time, in its most intense moments, tends toward the latter probe, heuristic probe technique, toward prediction rather than proof and retrospect. And film is in increasingly involved in these forms. Paradoxically, pop art, uh, comic strips and so on, tend to be rather avant-garde in the sense that they are always probing new situations. I'm not talking about the uh, storyline in them, I'm talking about their artistic mode. Pop art, uh, popular forms of entertainment, whether in the Elizabethan period, are now, or in uh, Dickens and Poe and Al Cap, are now regarded as serious investigations into the environment of the time. Dickens was intensely aware of the new changes in his time, as was uh, the uh, Edgar Allan Poe. And, uh, these people only achieve artistic status when they get moved into some other culture in some other time. As soon as the Al Caps are old enough, they're precious art forms, as soon Edgar Allan Poe and Dickens are regarded as absolute drivel by the, most of their contemporaries, but by the, uh, Edgar Allan Poe was regarded as a sort of artistic saint by Baudelaire, by Valerie, move him out of his culture into another culture, move Dickens into Russia, and he's a great man. A uh, great artist, and so on. Uh, this creates all sorts of confusion in many people's minds. Why should a thing be junk in one culture and great art in another? It has to do with the changing patterns of perception. And so, uh, with cowboy pictures and gangsters and Beatles, the uh, unmistakable triumph of artistic invention and unintended greatness has come very often to American films in things like the cowboy gangster pictures where people are free to play with their senses and get outside studios and outside movie lots and to uh, re exploit the resources of the total environment uh, under conditions of playfulness rather than a grim artistic earnestness. The, uh, the world of the Beatles in the same way is a, an area like Chaplin, in which people put on the audience. The reason the Beatles are so powerful has nothing to do with their artistic merits in any abstract sense. It has to do with the fact that they have succeeded in putting on the audience, both in sound and in appearance. That is, the image they have created is one that has been drawn from the public. It doesn't come out of their insides at the public at all. Charlie Chaplin was an artist not because he had anything to say, but because he put on the audience. He selected certain modes of audience behavior and wore them as a mask, an artist mask. The great entertainer, the great artist, always has that infallible power of just reaching for this bit and that bit of the public gesture and rhythm, putting it on. Thanks for listening to the first issue of the Phonetic Renaissance. I'd love to hear any feedback, ideas, or comments that you have. Just write to me on Twitter. If we see that this medium actually works, then we plan to post a new issue every two weeks or so. So follow us on Twitter to get updates on that. We'll explore new themes, have new guests, and new ideas every time. Thanks for listening.